So I'm here today uh, to talk to Khalid Barakat. He is a Palestinian writer and journalist, a member of the executive committee of the Alternative Revolutionary Ba'ath Movement of Palestine, also known as Masar Badil. He lives uh, right now in exile in Canada, having recently been uh, kicked out of Germany. Right now he's banned from the European Union and from the USA. Um, he was born and raised in Jerusalem and of course, uh, a strong anti-imperialist and advocate of the right of the Palestinian people. So thank you very much, Khalid, for agreeing to talk to us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me, Jyoti. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I just wanted to start by reading you a quote from a very interesting article I read. Uh, it was on Vanessa Bealey's website, which is called The Wall Will Fall, uh, by a writer called Syed Hassan, I think perhaps he's Lebanese. Anyway, he, he just wrote this and I thought it was an interesting way to, to, to kick off our conversation about the most recent events in Palestine, which were launched on 7th of October with Al-Aqsa flood. Um, and Hassan wrote this, he wrote, whatever happens, October the 7th will go down in history as a resounding victory for the Palestinian resistance and an earthquake for Israel. No massacre, no destruction, no genocide can ever erase it. As Sheikh Naim Qasem pointed out, Israel has little choice today but between being content with the crushing defeat it has already suffered or persisting in blind revenge and suffering discredit and defeat on a much bigger scale. And I thought that was a really uh, telling insight uh, and I wondered if we could use that as a starting point, uh, Khalid, for our conversation. What do you think have been the real results for all sides of the resistance operation so far? Um, I think this is a very important question. Um, uh, and it's coming from kind of the opposite of how uh, capitalist media try to portray October 7th. These days they start with talking about October 7th from like the the reactionary uh, view of uh, you know you should first start with condemning uh, the Palestinian resistance and and then you know uh, speak and so um, I think it's important to look at October seventh from the perspective of a where the Palestinian resistance have reached in terms of its experience in Gaza and in Palestine, but Gaza in particular, because as you know, Jyoti, this is not the first confrontation uh, that the Palestinian resistance have been engaged uh, against the Israeli occupation. Uh, people remember 2008, 2012, 2014. And so there is a, a rich experience and more um, you know, uh, this is a turning point where the Palestinian resistance, military resistance have reached. Also, in terms of Gaza itself, um, many people uh, don't know that Gaza have a very uh, long uh, experience in resistance. In the late 60s, early 70s, the resistance in Gaza was led by 
um, uh, uh, you know, the PFLP, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and the leader of the resistance, then his name, uh, his code name was Givara uh, of Gaza. And so, um, and from 1967 until 1973, um, the resistance in Gaza was led by uh, Marxist-Leninists. Uh, and then after that, um, Palestinian nationalists uh, kind of uh, led the Palestinian resistance uh, since 87 up until today, uh, you know, Hamas and Islamic Jihad and, and other Islamic forces have been leading the resistance. So this is not, October 7th have to be looked at from this historical context of where Palestinians in Gaza uh, uh, and their experiences is. Now, in terms of the direct effect of October 7th, uh, as Sheikh Naim Qasim pointed, and he is absolutely correct, that it was a in an operation that uh, shook the, uh, the Israeli project foundation. Um, 1,200 Palestinian fighters uh, with a very well-calculated measures, um, trained, uh, were able to, uh, for a, a moment, liberate a, a, a part of Palestine by force. And Israel elite, which is called the Gaza uh, Brigade, uh, that is an Israeli uh, brigade, have fallen uh, completely. Um, and uh, this is actually part of the ramifications and the outcome of this operation. I don't think the resistance um, had, uh, you know, calculated that the Israeli army is going to crumble in front of them and just leave their posts and leave their tanks and run away. And so, you know... Um, and it's going to be an earthquake, and we're still uh, living the uh, the aftermath of it, and it's going to continue for a, for a while. Uh, but definitely October 7th is a beginning of a new era for Palestinian resistance and for the Israeli and the Zionist project in Palestine uh, as well, and for the region, because today uh, we see also that... Uh, resistance in the region, in Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, and uh, elsewhere, they have transformed the slogan of the unity of the fronts from its theoretical kind of circle to its practical uh, circle. Absolutely. And it's been, I think, really inspiring for those of us who have long um, understood that these struggles are all one, that fundamentally the enemy behind Zionism, you know, Zionism is everybody's enemy in the Middle East because Zionism is US imperialism's armed outpost in the Middle East. And therefore, when you're fighting right. Zionism, you're fighting US imperialism. Um, and fundamentally, the fight is against US imperialism. Um, and it's been wonderful to see increasingly that being vocalized across the Middle East by all the different resistance forces. And you start to feel that, as you said, this, this theoretical position that the, the Palestinian struggle is at the heart of all of our struggles, the fight against Zionism is all of our fight, 
is being made a practical reality and uh, it's it's a kind of a joyful sight to witness because it's it's been so long needed and and now you you feel that October 7th has kind of kicked this into a, into a new gear um and seeing for example the the Yemeni forces you know physically putting everything now into you know putting their money where their mouth is and you think what Yemen has suffered you know, over the years, but they've built this incredible resistance movement that's very organized, very disciplined, very clear-sighted about what the goals are. And they know their fight doesn't stop at the borders of Yemen. And they've made that super clear right now. And they've been so uh, staunch in support of Palestine. It's been, it's been a wonderful example, I think, to see the operations they've been carrying out, uh, despite, you know, how difficult their own situation is. Um, so, so as you say, this this you know uptick in coordination and uh, of different resistance efforts, Syria, Iraq, you know, at, sold, uh, soldiers and resistance forces in those places attacking the U.S. occupation, um, as well as you know Hezbollah fighting against uh, Zionism on the on the northern borders of uh, what is now Israel. Um, I wonder if you think that the, the the wider geopolitical shifts have also played their part in what we're seeing right now. Because of course, um, not that long ago, we were looking at this um, Chinese um, mediated rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, both countries entering the BRICS. And it, when I saw that happen, I said, wow, the war in Syria, the war in Yemen, they're going to come to an end. Israel is going to be isolated and its days are numbered from this moment on. That's how it looked to me when I saw that uh, rapprochement being organised. I said, you know, if, if these two who've been engineered to be against one another at the heart of, you know, the, the, the US strategy for dominating the Middle East, if they can be brought together because the imperialist attention is elsewhere and because yes. it's not been working out, even for Saudi Arabia, being the chief stooge in the Middle East has not been working out, you know, and they can see that there's a possibility of a saner way to behave and that they can see that the, their backer is a power which is waning. Do you think that has affected A, the timing of this operation or B, the effect that it's been able to have? Absolutely, uh, because uh, when we look at the international uh, level uh, and we try to position what happened in Gaza and what's happening now, we can see that in a very uh, clearly uh, clear way. Uh, we are uh, witnessing and living an interim period in which uh, forces on an international level and the balance of power is shifting. We are witnessing a retreat in the uh, United States empire uh, in the region and worldwide. Um, and this retreat doesn't come sometime uh, in a uh, you know peaceful way. Uh, most of the time when empires are retreating and losing their grip, they become even more vicious. In 1956, for example, when uh, Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal, uh, there was an indication of how 
the empire of uh, you know the um, Britain was uh, retreating and France, uh, and there were victories happening you know in Algeria and in, in Africa, uh, you know uh, Asia and, and elsewhere, and a rise in independent movement. Uh, um, and they waged a war against Egypt in 1956, but they lost. And the reason that they lost is because we were also looking at that uh, shift in international power. Uh, we see that today with, uh, you know, uh, US versus uh, Russia, China, especially in areas like the Middle East. Uh, and uh, well, now the UK is like, uh, they're just a puppet for the United States capitalists. They just follow uh, what the U.S. says. They're not really uh, uh, an international force uh, that, that, that they used to be. But that, we should take that in consideration. Uh, two uh, is regional power. There is a rise in the what we call the camp of resistance uh, poll. Uh, led by Iran uh, as a regional power uh, that is supporting uh, resistance movement in the region from Yemen to Iraq to Lebanon and Palestine. And there is a retreat in the reactionary uh, um, forces like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and so on and so forth. How do we measure this retreat and this progress? Um, what is the symptoms that can give us uh, these things? Uh, as communists and socialists, we must always look at the class analysis on this situation. It's not just the political, uh, although the political is a manifestation of that contradiction. The primary contradiction in the region is between the people of the region and imperialism. And that's why, for example, you mentioned the Yemenis. Uh, well, in the last uh, 10 years, um, well, since 2015, uh, Yemen have been subjected to a war led by Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, fully supported by the military industrial complex in the US and reactionary regimes, but the Yemenis have won. And the reason that they have won is because they actually represented the popular and working class of Yemen versus these rich monarchists who, uh, you know, wants to uh, blunder the resources of Yemen. And uh, 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 when we look at Lebanon, for example, people don't speak about the fight on wealth and resources of the people of Lebanon and the role of resistance in protecting the wealth of the Lebanese people. But we know that there has been no other way to protect peoples uh, in, in Lebanon. Wealth, their natural gas, their resources without the Lebanese resistance. If it was only the, the, the Lebanese bourgeois uh, government, they won't even be able to protect the wealth of the Lebanese people. We had to have a strong, uh, literally strong armed resistance in Lebanon in order to protect Lebanon resources. And these are, when people speak about it, they say, this is our resources. This is the, it belongs to the people of Lebanon. It doesn't belong to a class. It doesn't belong to a sect. Um, there is a lot of 
conscious, class conscious that has been, although um, it is not visible in the discourse, but it's very visible in terms of how people speak about it and realize it. There's a knowledge about why the United States wants to have these bases in our region, why these companies are making all these plots against, you know, um, why all these normalization relationship between Saudi Arabia and uh, Netanyahu? When Netanyahu spoke in the United Nations and had that map and spoke about the peace corridor and start talking about economic plans, uh, you know, people in, in Gaza understood that this meant the erasing of Gaza, literally. Uh, they think of Gaza as a threat and the entire map of Palestine uh, had Israel name on it. So basically, it's the uh, masses, popular classes, working classes of the region realizing that if they want to have, if they want to be able to protect their resources from all this camp, the imperialist Zionist reactionary camp, they have to do it with strength. And the only strength they can have is military strength. Uh, that's the only way they can be able to protect the oil of Iraq, the natural gas of Lebanon, the wealth that they discovered across Gaza shores. And so I think as socialists and communists, we should be focusing on more on that aspect of the conflict and not just what media try to uh, portray, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what is this conflict uh, is all about. Absolutely. It's really interesting, uh, Khaled, what you're describing there really is a, is a growth of anti-imperialist consciousness amongst the masses. And of course, this is a, it's easy to say, but this is a consciousness that has been formed with blood, right? This is a hundred years of bitter, horrific experiences of the Arab people's, you know, quest for national liberation, self-determination, being constantly crushed at every turn and having to find out why is this? Why is this? And why is it that these people can't respond to us as people? Why is this machine unable to respond to us in a, in a reasonable way? Why can't we persuade these people to see sense and to treat us like human beings? And, you know, they've had to learn all these lessons in the harshest possible way. But as you're um, describing there, these lessons have been and continue to be learned by ever broader sections of the masses, the working masses in the Middle East. And of course, this is something we often talk about in our party, or we try to explain to our new members and cadres, you know, because we live inside imperialism. And when you're born inside an imperialist country, you have a totally warped vision of reality. Uh, even if you read Lenin about imperialism, it's very hard to truly understand it because you're inside this fake bubble, this fake reality. And yes. you have, you're just, you are bred from birth with a kind of supremacist outlook. Even the poorest uh, worker in Britain has a kind of supremacist view of the world without realizing it. 
without realizing it. And even ones who are class conscious in Britain against the ruling class and the state here have that without understanding how it got there or what it, what it represents because of the system that we live in. So it can be very hard for people in Britain to see the struggling masses elsewhere as real human beings. And they fall for the propaganda of our rulers who of course have a totally supremacist view of the world and who always fail to take into account the actions of the masses. They're always surprised when their plans don't work because in their plan, they just had to move the pieces around and this is how it's going to be. And yet they keep, no matter how many times they fail, that doesn't change their method of deciding how they're gonna carry on because to them, the masses are, disposable you know pieces on the chessboard they're not real human beings they don't have intelligence and agency and they, the, the the imperialists are incapable because of their position in this type of a system incapable of learning actually the truth that you know keeps being hammered into them all through the last hundred years that it's the masses who make history the masses have agency and they, since the October Revolution, the predominant consciousness in the world is a national liberation consciousness. It's a, it's a feeling that we are all equal. We have rights. We have the right to our own self-determination, to decide our futures, to run our countries as we wish. And no amount of pressure for, and will stop that. And eventually, you know, this is the current which is, which is going to dominate the world. And, and we can see it becoming the dominant current in world thinking. But of course, inside the imperialist heartlands, very hard for, for workers to understand that. They, it's very often that people confuse solidarity with charity. Feeling, right. feeling sorry for people is their yes. idea of anti-imperialist solidarity, right? They don't understand at all the relationship between their life and the lives of the people elsewhere. So, you know, it's very helpful for us to talk to people from, from outside this bubble and, and learn from their experience. And on that, on that, on that line, um, I wanted to talk a bit about the way that the narrative is finally shifting in the West. Um, and it's like, it's, it's been a slow incremental thing that's been building and building and then suddenly, it's like it's flipped over and uh, things which a few people understood are suddenly being understood by huge numbers of people. You know, uh, people like me uh, have been talking about, you know, the genocide that's being inflicted on Palestine for decades. Now everybody's talking about it, right? And um, there's been a slow buildup since the Iraq war, actually, of a, a, a kind of crisis in legitimacy for the political leaders and the, and the media in the imperialist countries. And it's this operation in Gaza now and the Israeli response, which is so incohate, it's just rage. And it's literally just taking out its rage on you know, women and children in apartment blocks. You know, it's so obviously not a military operation. Um, and yet our media and our politicians continue to genuflect before the principle of Zionism and they do this 
Israel has the right to defend itself. Israel has that, and they endlessly spout this, and they can't see war crimes that are in front of them. Oh, it's not for me to decide what's a war crime, but they're happy to decide that anything's a war crime when it happens in Ukraine, you know, without any investigation and with no information. But with all the information in front of them, they can't say war crime when Israel does it. And this has become suddenly so evident to masses everywhere. I've never seen a protest movement on the streets of London like the one I saw two weeks ago since 2003 before Iraq. Uh, but this one's driven by a much greater kind of rage and disenfranchisement. So I wondered if you, um, what you what you think about, about the way that the public discourse, even in the West, has really been affected. I think that people uh, worldwide have experienced uh, a world led by the uh, United States and capitalism in the last, uh, you know, uh, four decades. Uh, and they have seen nothing but miseries and wars. Uh, one third of the people of the world uh, population are under sanctions and siege. It's not just Gaza. When you look at Africa, for example, and the situation there, and the rise in uh, people's movement rejecting uh, French, German, uh, you know, US, uh, UK uh, domination in Africa, uh, people and, and movements, they go back to the roots uh, of their heritage and their struggle. So all of a sudden, you see these historical. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, liberating of their own history and their own culture and their own heritage. They go back to movements that used to exist in the 60s uh, and they, they bring back these symbols of resistance and of revolution in, in Africa. Uh, in, in, in Asia, uh, the same thing. In Latin America, we have witnessed also a rise in uh, in movements rejecting uh, uh, you know the hegemony of uh, imperialism and, and and I think this is part of it uh, the people of the world uh, and particularly also in the West they're not exactly uh, having the best uh, uh, you know days in their um, in their lives in terms of their economic uh, rights their political rights they see. Uh, what's happening. I mean, you look at the United States uh, and you compare how people are living today in terms of like uh, their uh, their uh, their just daily lives versus the 50s. Um, it's very hard to sometimes support your child going to college these days. And uh, there is a real problems in the inherited problems in the very nature of capitalism. And this crisis, we know that always they try to solve it at the expense of the working class and the people. And so they, they want to solve the crisis of the economy at the expense of the people of the you know, Arab world or, or Africa by you know, stealing more resources. Uh, changing regimes that will fit their own uh, you know, agenda. Um, and Israel is very central component in this uh, imperialist, uh, you know, uh, 
plots. And in Palestine particularly, since Palestine fall under the British colonization in 1917, we knew about all these imperialist plots that's, you know, uh, it's because something great happened in the world, which is the uh, revolution of October in Russia. And without, you know, Lenin, uh, who published, uh, you know, these, you know, pu publicly about what is awaiting the uh, Arabs and the, uh, you know, uh, Arab world and the Muslim world, he published it and he said, this is how we knew of the San Remo pact, the Sykes-Pico uh, pact, it's due to the Russian uh, revolution uh, in October of 1917. So yes, something could happen uh, on the scale of, uh, you know, um, colonization uh, and hegemony, but somewhere else where no one is looking at uh, a rise began uh, to happen uh, to 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 have this balance of power, you, you know, uh, uh, and it shifts uh, and it changes the world. In 1948, when Israel was announced to be, uh, you know, established Israel and uh, they displaced uh, the vast majority of the Palestinian people, find themselves in refugees. Two years later, we began to see a movement in Egypt, and then 1952, the uh, revolution happened in Egypt. And I think well, the reason I'm, I'm saying this is because we cannot look at what's happening in 2023 away from this last, how things developed. Um, they... Uh, it is in their interest to start talking about history. It started in October 7th or started in the Oslo, uh, you know, agreements 1993 or, but history is, you know, uh, uh, didn't start on October 7th. And I think that we began to see a more resistance, people resistance worldwide in the absence of that center that, uh, existed in before in in the socialist bloc led by the Soviet Union. Now we begin to see more of people uh, resistance. There are of course forces, states that are anti-imperialist in their policies, like Venezuela, uh, like uh, Cuba, Bolivia, you know, uh, Iran, and so on and so forth. But until now we did not see that center, that core center that could actually lead uh, uh, people to an alternative path on a world scale and say, look, this is not uh, going to, uh, uh, this is not going to work where the United States is going to impose its will on the, uh, on the world and the people of the world. Um, the rise we see in uh, Asia, uh, the rejection, you know, people, popular rejection on a, on a mass, massive scale against companies and the role of the companies. People did not see that very visibly like they see it today, where companies rule uh, states, where companies change policies. The role of the company is not is not under the table anymore. It's very visible, they, they, you know. And that's why when the Yemenis resistance take these actions, 
they take it in a well-calculated manner that this is attacking the interests of imperialists. This is not just taking, you know, we're mad and we're upset and we just want to revenge, you know, the uh, our brothers and sisters in Gaza who's been under, uh, you know, Israeli bombardment. No, they, they understand that without hitting the interests of imperialism uh, and by taking these ships, without one single drop of blood, but it hits them where it hurts them, their pockets. That, in my view, is the essence of class conscious and how that could be utilized in a revolutionary manner. Uh, whether some of our leftist friends, they don't understand this, they don't get this, not just the liberals, but even some leftists doesn't understand, for example, how some of the Islamic groups are actually revolutionary groups until they have, you know, open mind and start talking to, to them and have a dialogue with them. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, organized an event with a member of the Politburo of Islamic Jihad and with leftists and communists from around the world. And they were shocked that he is saying you know, we're an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, when he starts talking about exploitation of workers and like Islamic Jihad talks about these things. Yes, they do. In fact, they're very much into the deprived classes. Yes, they don't call it, you know, the richest of the world or the, the working class. They use different terms, but it's the same meaning. Uh, you know, they talk about poor people. They talk about uh, people who are being uh, isolated or, uh, you know, but it's really a class conscious analysis. Um, and that is important. Definitely. And you've described there, you know, essentially how the West is a system, the Western imperialism is a system that's dying before our eyes, you know. And I often say to my comrades, you know, when, when they're feeling like, you know, God, the decadence and decay and decline of our societies is so, is so kind of horrible, um, you know, I say, well, the hope that you can take from that is that you're looking at the last days of Rome. And at the other side of the fall and decline of the empire, there's hope, there's a positive future. But of course, yeah. if you only see the future in terms of this system, all you can see is you know, a decline and misery and, you know, nothing to be, nothing to look forward to, only things getting worse, more crisis, more poverty, more inequality, more war. Yes, that's all this system can offer us. That's the very reason why the forces are growing that are going to replace this system with something else. Um, and so for me, it's a it's a positive sign, actually, that there's so much decay and decadence. But, you know, it's it's all it's simultaneously horrible and hopeful. Um, and you're right, again, you know, you brought up this question of context, you know, that the imperialists um, in their media, in particular, they do this thing of taking away context. So they always talk as if something just started. So, you know, the resistance in Palestine started on the 7th of October and there's a, the 75 years or 100 years before that is disappeared. They did the same thing when Russia launched its special military operation. History began on the 22nd of February or 24th of February, you know, 1922. Uh, uh, and, you know, they, they do this constantly and continuously, you know, for years uh, I have, you know, been frustrated trying to explain to people every time there was any um, outbreak of um, 
or uptick in resistance activity in Palestine. It would always be reported like oh, clashes uh, and Israel has responded to Palestine launching a rocket. It's like, what are you yeah. talking about? You know, but um, this this discussion of resistance as uh, just random people who just decided to use a weapon, you know, in the West, we have this narrative constantly. They always have to start with Israel has the right to defend itself. They never talk about the Palestinians' right to resist. And of course, the truth is exactly the opposite. The Palestinians have the right to resist this, what is in fact recognized internationally as an illegal occupation. They have the right to resist, uh, even, if, even if international law and the United Nations didn't recognize it, they would have that right to national liberation. It's a just struggle. The, occupier does not have the right to defend to defend itself the occupier has no rights and yet the starting point is always the right to defend as opposed to the right to resist um and so it's not surprising that people in the west are very confused about the nature of the resistance and you were talking there about islamic jihad having a very class-based analysis and a very anti-imperialist orientation in our media something that's frustrated me very much um is the way that this whole resistance operation has been framed as Hamas versus Israel. Now, from my perspective, this has been a joint resistance operation. So I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about who is it who's fighting? Uh, because, it, you know, all we hear is Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. And of course, Hamas has been encoded into people's brains as a, as a word for terrorism. So this is the way they try to shape the narrative. Yes, you know, uh, this is a well-calculated capitalist uh, schemes and media, and, and they do it and they say it, uh, not just uh, in terms of Hamas. If you take a look, for example, the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict and the Arab-Israeli conflict, you know, historically. So... Israel would say, for example, in the 80s, that our problem is not with the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, our problem is with the PLO. And so, you know, the invasion of Lebanon was, you know, Israel versus the PLO. And sometimes Israel versus Yasser Arafat, sometimes they even personalize it, not just the PLO, but, you know, this man, Yasser Arafat. And the reason Israel says all the time that its problem is not with the Palestinian people, but it's with the PLO or with Fatah or with the PFLP and now Hamas, is to say that Palestinians have no rights, is to say that Palestinians have no cause, and that, you know, the problem is this organization. And they also want to copy and paste, you know, U.S. versus Al-Qaeda or, uh, you know, U.S. versus, you know, Bin Laden. And, uh, you know, uh, often we heard it in Cuba, for example, you know, Castro would be the evil. If Castro just leaves the scene, then uh, everything will be fine in, in Cuba. And this is part of the discourse uh, that they try to promote in order to say that the problem is this organization and that the response to this is how come if the problem is Hamas, that's, uh, you know, just for the sake of argument, 
If the problem is Hamas, then why are you not giving anything to the most liberal Palestinian voices, voices that amount to collaborators with Israel, like Mahmoud Abbas uh, and Palestinian capitalists in the West Bank? How come you say to them that we don't want to talk to you, we don't want to have anything to do with you? And they're they're, they gave concessions like no Palestinian have ever get concessions. They basically gave everything. And still Israel wouldn't even talk to Mahmoud Abbas. In fact, they call him, they also call him a terrorist sometime or a supporter of a terrorist organization. And that's Mahmoud Abbas. I mean, it's their guy. It's, their, it's a collaborator. Uh, the other thing is when you look at the Lebanon case, for example, they say we have no problem with Lebanese people. Our problem is with Hezbollah. And so this is a discourse that the people of the region understand and uh, they know that this is just blatantly, uh, you know, um, misrepresenting the essence and the core of this conflict. Hamas existed because there is a Palestinian-Israeli conflict and not the conflict existed because Hamas is, is, is there. Uh, the other thing is that Hamas is part of the Palestinian resistance and not the Palestinian resistance. Um, Palestinians in, as people, uh, you know, uh, not just as a, a liberation movement, but as people, we uh, uh, are very, um, we come from different backgrounds, uh, religion backgrounds, theoretical backgrounds, social backgrounds. And Hamas is just one line, one color of the Palestinian people uh, movement. Um, also, sometimes they like to intentionally, the enemy try to intentionally mix uh, apples and oranges in order to deceive people. So for example, they will say uh, that we are going to have a list of the terrorist organizations that they think that they're terrorists. So they put, for example, Al-Qaeda uh, and ISIS, and then they put Hezbollah, and then they put the Communist Party of the Philippines. And then after that, they'll say the Islamic uh, whatever, and then after that, the PFLP. And, and so they intentionally uh, do that in order to put all of these groups in one basket. So you have to look at then Hezbollah, just like ISIS. They won't tell you that Hezbollah is the one that defeated ISIS and that without Hezbollah, ISIS today would be sitting in Beirut, ruling Lebanon and killing everyone in Lebanon, uh, not just, you know, uh, Shiites, but Sunnis and Christians and everyone else in Lebanon. And so they won't show the actual truth and facts of how things uh, is happening. And I think that this is, backing fires on capitalist media because in today's age i think people have more access to an alternative media and so yes uh, you know for example just when we think about it 30 years ago 40 years ago if you're like just a person in the in new york or london or you know uh canada and you're, you you read you read what you read three, four, five different newspapers, they're all giving you the same story, although they're five different titles, different names, but it's the same 
portraying of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So basically, you get one source. Um, it's not five. It's five newspapers, but you get the same story. Uh, but today, I think with the new media and new generations and uh, access of information, I think people start to believe that they were deceived for so many years. And especially the younger generation who is playing a more role, not just because they're young, uh, but because, uh, or youth, that's not enough. Uh, but I think that they have more access to uh, an alternative uh, views, alternative, uh, you know, uh, angles of how conflicts, uh, uh, you know, are being portrayed. And I feel like capitalism is aging. Uh, and I feel like, yes, you can have a very strong economy, very strong, you know, technology like Israel does. But Israel as a project is aging. It belongs to the 40s of last century. When the young generation sees Zionist leaders speaking, they, 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 they think of fascism and, and Nazis speaking as if they're seeing this in a film, you know, uh, that it's happening in the 40s. And so Zionism is aging too. And we see that once, for example, younger Jewish um, uh, folks in, in Canada are part of the boycott movement and they're very, you know, their role is important in universities. Uh, they're calling for boycotting Israel. They're not buying what their uh, same age Israelis in Palestine uh, are seeing themselves part of a battle against, you know, uh, because in, in Israel, the entire society is being um, uh, you know, mobilized behind this fascist uh, uh, idea. So the vast majority of Israelis are part of these, uh, you know, political parties. They go and they vote for the most extremist Israeli party, thinking that this is going to lead them to victory. And so, so the more extreme you are, the more fascist you are, uh, you know, the better it is for them. And then they see that Palestinian resistance is actually strong and respond and can respond and can win, uh, you know, battles, not just military battles, but also, um, you know, battles on a moral level, ethical level, media level, international level. That's how they began to crumble. You know, colonizations, and colonizers doesn't get defeated because they're weak. They usually get defeated when they're in the peak of their strength, but they're not being able to win. And, and that's how we start seeing retreat, uh, uh, you know, in, in all levels. Uh, you know, the French, when they were defeated in Algeria, they had two million soldiers versus, you know, few thousands Algerian fighters. Is not because they they were weak. They were using all of their arsenal against the people of Algeria, and yet they were um, getting defeated. Um, the same thing, I think, it goes on. For example, uh, the Israeli generals used to say, "We can occupy Lebanon with a musical band in the '80s." Well, let's try now and see if they can just enter the south of Lebanon. 
they will not be able to enter with their most powerful tanks, more than 10 meters in Lebanon, and their tanks will be turned into rubbles because there is resistance. You know, um, it's very interesting how uh, the only way to liberate uh, the Israeli society, not just the Palestinians, because this is the, the complicated task of Palestinians. We have to liberate ourselves and liberate them. And the only way that we can liberate them is by defeating them. Uh, they, they don't get liberated by lecturing them. They get liberated when you defeat them. And look at the examples that the Palestinian resistance are giving today with how they treat Israeli captured in Gaza with respect and they have uh, you know, rights and they don't want them to speak about how they were treated by the Palestinian resistance. Uh, at the same time, we see how Israel is brutalizing Palestinian political prisoners, how they're torturing them, how they're, and so we're the opposite. We can't, we can't do what, what Zionists are doing. We're, we're the opposite in all levels. And so, but you have to defeat them in order for them to understand that because Israelis are really convinced like Nazis, like, uh, you know, fascists, they're convinced that they're better, that they, this not supposed to happen to them. It's supposed to happen to others, but not to them. And because they're superior and they do have these convictions and the, the, the press, the culture, the school, you know, they get their children, for example, uh, uh, you know, uh, singing how they're gonna in in you know destroy Gaza and 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 erase Gaza from the map, and so the dehumanizing of Palestinians on a daily basis. It's not just happening on a political level. It starts from schools by dehumanizing Arabs and Palestinians, and so these kids grow up to become soldiers, and so for them. Palestinians are expendables. They can shoot them, they can kill them. Anyone in Gaza for an Israeli soldier is a is a, a legitimate target, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a child, whether it's a, you know, and, and, and often media talks about how, you know, Palestinian women and, and children are being, you know, killed in Gaza. And, and a comrade, a, a woman, uh, she was telling me, you know, they often, we should talk about Palestinian men too. Palestinian men are being killed as well. It's not just women and children. And so this discourse of also, yeah, it's okay if a Palestinian man died, but you know, not children and women. Also, I think capitalists and Zionists themselves are uh, trying to steal our discourse, the socialist discourse, the progressive discourse, and they're trying to steal it and apply it to themselves. So not just you know, and 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 often they look weird and like uh, like almost like a stooge, because what, what what happened is that they try to play this card of victims, and at the same time they they try to portray that they are the most strongest army in the in the in the region. And I, I you know I never seen a victim with four hundred nuclear warheads like you know and, and destroying you know people. What what kind of victim is is this? And at the same time, they cannot get rid of Palestinians because now in the historical land of Palestine, we have, uh, you know, 7.3 million Palestinians and there's about 7 million Israelis. So, and the two-state, the so-called two-state solution is gone. It's, it doesn't, 
it doesn't exist any uh, anymore. So Israelis have only one choice uh, with Palestinians. Either they will submit and, and be defeated and accept to live under Palestinian in the liberation, in the liberated Palestine, and uh, for us, for me personally, it, it's socialism, you know. But until then, uh, the only way that I can see uh, a resolution in this conflict is um, by secular democratic uh, Palestine, where, you know, uh, Israelis will understand that this is not just about Palestine and the Palestinians, and that Israel is a base for imperialist and imperialism in the region. And it's not about Gaza or Hamas or any of this rhetoric. It's more than that. It's bigger than that. Uh, and yes, Palestinians, we are kind of the representative of the of the um, of one side, and Israel is a representative of another side, and the conflict is happening in Palestine, but it's not even an Israeli-Palestinian conflict only; it's it's an international one and it's an Arab one. You've summed up really beautifully there, Khalid. Uh, something that real anti-imperialists have known for a long time, which is the reason that the Palestinian struggle for so many decades has been at the forefront of the anti-imperialist struggle is because it's not just about Palestine. It's right. Palestine, the Palestinians had the misfortune to be in the place where yes. imperialism decided to put its base and the base is there to control the Middle East and oil. That's right. They needed the oil, they needed to control the oil. They decided that they would have this base. You've also um, summarized something that I've often talked about and thought about over the years which is this, actually this horrific thing. When you, as a human being, if you stop and think about this horrific pact with the devil, essentially that uh, a section of Jewish people from Europe made with the British and then the American imperialists, it's something so horrible when you stop and think about it, because in return, for a better standard of living and a privileged position compared to the native population around them, they agreed to be an armed outpost. And what does that mean for them as human beings? As you just described, they're bringing up their children to hate. They're bringing up their children to shoot and kill every brown person they see and to think that that's normal and okay. And in you know, we, there's an expression, and I think it's so apt for the Zionist project, to dehumanize others, you must first dehumanize yourself. And the horrible thing about Israeli society is that is exactly what they do on an industrial scale. They dehumanize their children from so young. You know, I remember the 2008 uh, attacks against Gaza and the pictures we saw those of us who were paying attention, of people bringing their kids to write on bombs that they were sending to Gaza. And you look at a picture like that and think, as a parent, exactly. how can you put your child into yes. that position? And then they are actually taking away, they have killed the, the, their narrative, one of their, as you said, they have competing narratives, right? On the one hand, they've weaponized victimhood. Like there's only one victim in the world and it's the Jewish people because of the Nazi Holocaust against Jews. 
Uh, you know, we could talk about that all day. Uh, but okay, there's one Holocaust and it was only against us and we are the victims and anything, but you know, we are the victims of the world and therefore anything we do is justified and okay. Um, but on the other hand, you know, project trying to say, you know, how strong they are. But this thing of um, actually, they've taken away their own uh, basis for saying, talking about Israeli civilians. You know, they are training their children not to be civilians, right? Everybody has to serve in the army. Everybody's everybody's yeah. armed. You know, the kibbutzes around the Gaza fence, they're, they're military posts, you they know? Are. They're not little socialist experiment. Right? So this whole, um, you know, kind of narrative that there's such a thing as Israeli civil society, I think is a is a total charade, really. You know, it's a military base and everybody there is a soldier. Um, yes. And that's, yes. that's something, you know, really sort of horrifying when you actually stop and think about it on a human level that, you know, as human beings, the Israelis need this liberation as much as the Palestinians do. You, you know, yes. you're 100% right about that, you know. Um, and if you look just uh, in, in a quick comment, if if you look at why Palestinians inside, uh, you know, Palestinians with Israeli citizens uh, in 1948 occupied land in Israel, why they're not engaged in any kind of popular support for their brothers and sisters in Gaza is due to this horrific, literally terrorizing them uh, you know, and, and the, the level of racism and threats they see. And so, yeah, you can have an Israeli citizenship, but if you're not Jewish, you are immediately singled out, isolated, looked at as a, a fifth column and, and, a, and a legitimate target. And they're arresting people for posting on a, on a Facebook page in the solidarity message with their brothers and sisters in Gaza, and some of them are even their, it's their relatives. Uh, and see, Israel has also failed as a state to become uh, anything, whether it's a, a safe haven for Jews, as they claim, or for Palestinians. They're, they're turning Palestine into a graveyard for, for everyone. And so that's why Israel itself has to be dismantled. Uh, 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 completely, and an alternative Palestine, in, in our view, is possible. Absolutely. Uh, Paul Bra, who's the founder of our party, used to say to us that, you know, the Israeli project really came too late because it's a settler colonial project which was established in the era of national liberation. Right? Uh, it's, yes. it's lasted, you would say, you could say, okay, 75 years, whatever is a long time, but in historical terms, it's not a very long time. From the beginning, its ending was guaranteed. Uh, also, also because they try to impose uh, a, a, a solution uh, uh, on Palestine that uh, it was an easy solution at that time in the uh, era of the two camps that you can just divide Palestine into two things, you know, like in Vietnam and North Korea, South Korea, Yemen. And so they thought that why not in Palestine, we can just divide the land into, you know, an Arab state, a Jewish state. And in Palestine, that doesn't work. A two-state solution is a formula of just keeping the same colonialist project. It doesn't 
work in Palestine to have two states. Palestine cannot be divided. Uh, and uh, in our dialogue with our Chinese uh, comrades and friends, we tell them don't support two-state solution. And they say, but, uh, you know, don't you think it's a better than nothing? Uh, and we say to them, well, you, you won't give one inch of Taiwan. And, you, you know, you have like a, a one China policy. I think we get to have the one Palestine policy too. And so sometimes we have tough dialogue with our comrades in the left. Uh, those who advocate for two-state solutions, and we tell them that it doesn't work. Uh, it just doesn't work. It's you're reinventing the same rhetoric. Who supports two-state solution today um, but capitalist and reactionary regimes and, and some uh, liberal Zionists? Uh, socialists, leftists, revolutionaries, Palestinian people in across the, the, the board now um, they want to see a liberated Palestine from the river to the sea. They want to see Palestine um, building a democratic, secular Palestine where everybody lives in Palestine, you know, um, under um, Palestinian, uh, you know, um, law. And uh, it's very hard for Zionist races to accept this uh this 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 discourse, uh, and they they're willing to fight and keep fighting, uh, rejecting this. But they are going to be defeated, and this is going to happen. And if the world is not going to take these Zionist leaders into a criminal courts, you know, international criminal courts, they will be prosecuted in a Palestinian courts in liberated Palestine. And one day, Palestinians are going to bring all these Zionist leaders and put them right in front of the world eyes and prosecute them in a public court um, and, and while people are watching and the world is watching because these crimes are not going to go uh, away. Palestinians, especially now after what's happening in Gaza, Palestinians are, are just going to continue their struggle until every inch of Palestine is liberated. I think, Comrade Khaled, there's so many things I would love to keep on talking to you about, but I promised you that we wouldn't go past an hour. So I think we're going to have to have you back to talk more about the other things I would like to yes. ask you about. Uh, you've I, summed up the situation beautifully there, so we will leave it there. Thank you so much again for giving us your time and your and your insights. It's been really, really interesting. I'm sure our audience is going to is going to really love it and want you back for more. So thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation, Ruthian. Greetings to the comrades and to everyone, uh, your viewers. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.